Welcome to Running Off the Rails. My name is Raymond O'Connor. And I'm Ariel Rasco. Today we'll be discussing how balance is an illusion at your table of Dungeons and Dragons. A few weeks ago, Psycho Puppy commented on one of our Reddit threads discussing Ariel's discussion with Corey about creating your first homebrew class. Psycho Puppy wanted to know if there was more of a recipe, uh, a step-by-step formula that someone could follow to create a successful homebrew class for their players and the wider Dungeons and Dragons community. This really got me thinking about this topic and eventually I came to the conclusion that there isn't a formula, but there is some very useful insight that I believe that we have that can help someone to create successful options at their table and avoid some of the pitfalls that exist, some of the traps and false targets that people find themselves aiming for that lead to unsuccessful game design, specifically the pursuit of balance. So Ray, when you pitched this idea to me, I wasn't sure how much you were trying to clickbait me or the audience because balance is an illusion is definitely a a hot take, I think. So I kind of wanted to see if I could really figure out exactly what you're talking about, because I think obviously some idea of balance makes sense. You know, there's a difference between level one characters and level 10 characters for a reason. And Ray, I know you've got two successful subclasses that people you don't know are using and enjoying. So clearly you've done something right. So I have to ask, what specifically do you mean by balance in this case? I mean that when I see people talking about homebrew options on Reddit and Discord, that everybody focuses in on this this false idea of quantitative parity that they think they can achieve when they're evaluating these different classes. It's very tempting, almost like a moth getting drawn to a flame, to hone in on all of the numbers that are being presented by these homebrew class options and compare them to existing options to prove how uh, maybe underpowered or overpowered these options are. Very quickly, you'll see people zooming in on this as the point of criticism, or this is the, the main area of criticism that they're offering feedback on. And I think that while obviously you want to be tasteful, in your choice of mechanical power. People hold it in too high regard, and as a result, they end up designing unsuccessful options that people end up not using at their tables of Dungeons and Dragons. If you're somebody who's sharing your homebrew content on the internet, looking for critical feedback from a much wider audience than just the people who are using options at your table, I think implicit in that is the hope that someone out there will be inspired by your homebrew material and decide to use it at their table too. It's a really funny point you make, right? Because Corey and I both maybe fell into this pit trap that you're describing. We put together spreadsheets and we calculated the expected value and variance of our damage over the course of a combat and compared them to other martial classes, or in my case, other spellcasting classes. And I don't know, do you think we did something that was a little bit overkill and What advice would you give to people if they're doing their homebrew class? Like how much work and what kind of work do they need to put in to have a reasonable homebrew class? No, I don't think that was overkill. I think that is a completely appropriate tool that someone can use to check with themselves to make sure that their their damage that their class can produce is tasteful. For example, when I was creating the, the Weave Breaker class, 
which was intended to be a very, very powerful martial option, uh, similar to the way that like a, the barbarian class is primarily a martial class. I also made tons of different tables to help me try and forecast how much damage that class would do. But it would be very foolish, I think, for me to believe that after I had run that math and found out that the Weave Breaker wasn't dealing more damage than, say, a Frenzy Barbarian, that my design was all of a sudden good or complete or even tasteful. I still needed to look at the spells that I was giving to the Weavebreaker to make sure that I was giving them mostly martial spells such that they would not have the versatility of a wizard or a sorcerer. I really needed to confine their spell selection such that I was achieving successful design or design that I felt that a wide audience of people would be excited about playing at the table, but also, importantly, allowing at their table. Yeah, I think this is an interesting point about what types of spells you are giving your class to, because I always sort of think of quantitative parity in Dungeons & Dragons as sort of including non-combat utility spells, something that a wizard could be really, really good at and have a lot of value outside of combat, depending on which spells they took. Or a class like a bard can be really, really helpful outside of combat with ability checks. So to me, this idea of quantitative parity kind of included how much combat power does my class have and try to numerically quantify that in some way. And how much power my class has outside of combat and try to numerically quantify in that way. And then put those two together and then suddenly, okay, I've got now this class that is balanced quantitatively. And I'm wondering, do you feel like that is a good way to go out and make your own homebrew or is that also trying to focus too much on the numbers game? I think that that's a way more useful lens by which to evaluate not just homebrew material, but also published Wizards of the Coast material. And that kind of brings us back to, I think, a very useful part of this conversation about, okay, I want to create my own homebrew stuff. There's a lot that you can learn by looking at published material. If you were to present a published class that shipped in the the core player's handbook and you were to look at it as if it was homebrew that someone was presenting for the first time as brand new. I think that for a lot of these options, people would be outraged. If we take a look at the barbarian class and the thing that is kind of awesome about the barbarian class, it's actually like really broken. The barbarian is resistant to all types of magical and non-magical bludgeoning, piercing, and slashing damage, starting all the way from level one. If the barbarian didn't exist as a class, and I showed up and I said, hey, take a look at this awesome class that I have, you get resistance on everything, especially if you choose this subclass, and I'm thinking about the bear totem subclass, which gives you resistance against all damage types except for psychic. And you have a d12 hit diet which no one else has. I think I would get laughed off of forums and Discord channels as coming up with something completely ridiculous. No class in the game has resistance the way that this one does. There's no precedent for this. But that's what makes the Barbarian so fun, and I think it's a successful class, and that's kind of what matters. Everybody plays the Barbarian, and everybody has fun 
because thematically it's so easy to get into character and to roleplay and to run into combat heedlessly and and just kill stuff exactly and i think a point that is important there is it's not just fun for the person playing the barbarian playing with a barbarian in your party a barbarian controlled by another player is also really fun and that's what i think makes the barbarian a really good example of successful design it's really fun for the person using the class it's also fun for the other players playing next to the barbarian and it's also really fun for the dungeon master who is also a player at the table who now gets to just wail on this player character and expect that they'll be able to take a lot of damage before they go down i mean as a dungeon master you don't want to have to not use your most powerful attacks just because you're afraid you're going to down a player now all of a sudden there's a specific player that you can throw all of your most awesome options at and know that they're probably going to be able to take it i actually think this is an incredible example that the barbarian is good design because it facilitates fun combats it's not about how much damage the barbarian can do or how much damage the barbarian can take it's the idea that having a really powerful tank in your game allows the dm to have more fun allows the players to have more fun it allows for more dangerous combats so now your goal of this class has shifted from what is fair compared to other classes and now your goal instead is Will this class be a good addition to the game of Dungeons and Dragons in terms of how much fun the players are having and what they're doing and what types of encounters the DM can put in front of the players? So to really drive this point home, I want to present the idea of a plus 10 magic sword. So a sword that gives you plus 10 to hit and plus 10 to all damage rolls. And we're going to give one of these to, um, say, the fighter in the group. Is this magic item balanced? Obviously not, right? Like, it's a plus 10 sword. And I'm inclined to believe that the internet at large would agree with you. But now we have to ask ourselves, why? Why is it not balanced? Because it'll be less fun for other players. This fighter is going to totally outshine every other player. They're going to feel like it's not fair, and they're going to feel like they aren't able to be challenged in the same way that the fighter is, or maybe... The fighter doesn't enjoy it because the fighter can no longer be challenged because the combats are only going to be too easy or they're going to kill every other player instead. I think that's that's a good point that my initial reaction was this is unbalanced because it would be unfun. Not it was unbalanced because of the numbers and the math that I was doing. And I think that a lot of people would actually get distracted by that question. They'd say, oh, this isn't balanced because... The best sword in the Dungeon Master's Guide is a plus three magic weapon. So obviously a plus ten sword must be unbalanced because it is way different from all the other published material. But as we've seen with the Barbarian, the formula to creating successful design is to not do what has already been done before. The Barbarian is totally different from every other option that exists. So to create a Barbarian that does what other classes do already, just in a slightly different modified way, would be way worse than the Barbarian that we actually have that was shipped with Wizards of the Coast material. Right, like if Wizards took the advice of the homebrew community, and the homebrewers community was saying, this is too different, you can't do this, you need to be more in line with existing standards, we wouldn't have the Barbarian class and it would be less fun. So based on this paradigm, 
we know that the plus 10 magic sword probably isn't uh, an item that we would recommend DMs just drop into their game because it probably would have the result at most tables that have multiple martial options of making other players have less fun. Now all of a sudden this is the only player who is hitting with all of their attacks. They're the only player who is killing enemies, sometimes in a single attack. And now they're kind of the protagonist or the main character of the story. And everybody else has become a sidekick by virtue of them not being able to deal nearly as much damage as this one person who has this sword. But we do sometimes, depending on your class composition, already have this imbalance in the game. If you're playing a game with a single martial character and everybody else is playing a spellcaster who doesn't have any martial options, even if that player has a plus two magic sword, they are imbalanced in the same way that a character with a plus 10 magic sword is, or a plus five magic sword. So just by virtue of someone having this advantage, doesn't mean that your game of Dungeons and Dragons is going to be less fun. It matters what the party composition at the table is. And I actually think that this is something that really does happen at tables and in conversations in D&D. You know, maybe if you're listening and you're like, there's a plus 10 sword or a plus 5 sword, that's an extreme example. Like, But I think multiclassing does put these kinds of situations into play sometimes. And you have multi-class options that are very controversial because so many people love this ability to create a very powerful character. And other people, when they play in these games, feel like their toes are getting stepped on. But I do think so many of these multi-class options are actually very fun at lots of tables and shouldn't be thrown out completely. You know, I'm thinking of the Sorkadin as an example. Oh yeah, the multi-class sorcerer-paladin <laughs> combination is so broken by the traditional definition of the word. You get to quicken, hold person, so that the your target that you're attacking is paralyzed, <laughs> and then you get to attack with advantage with your multi-attack, and if you hit, it's a critical, which means those smites that you get to save until you know whether or not that you've hit are going to be auto crits. So when we're thinking about options that deal even more damage than potentially dropping a plus 10 <laughs> magic sword into your game. Those things technically exist by the rules. They're options that Wizards of the Coast published and they put forward. Maybe they didn't know exactly what people were going to do with it. They knew that they were opening a box of combinatory options for players that they could not close after they had already opened it. Or at the very least, they haven't retconned this thing. They, you know, they've kept it in there for years. Exactly. Yeah, they haven't come out and said, hey, you're not supposed to do that. They've always just said, multi-classing is an optional rule. Decide whether or not it's right for your table, Dungeon Masters. And I think that is, that's a good idea, right? They're saying, here are these options that could be really successful at your tables, we are not going to stop those tables that can use these options successfully from doing so just because there's a population of people for which these options will not work. 
uh, or maybe a dungeon master will not be able to run encounters successfully if someone has this option at their table. This is actually fundamental to some other mechanics in D&D as well. Obviously, there are other variant rules that the DM can choose to use, but there are core rules that I think force the DM to make difficult decisions. And I'm thinking of turn undead and favored terrain specifically, where you as the DM change the power level and the quantitative balance of your characters based on how many undead you put in a campaign with clerics, or based on how often your players are in their favored terrain or fighting their favored enemies. Exactly. So another ability that comes to mind is the aura for the Oath of the Ancients Paladin. It's a paladin aura that halves all damage from spells for that paladin and any of their allies within 10 feet. That's absurdly powerful, especially in a campaign that heavily features spellcasters. Maybe it's a campaign where you're trying to topple the government of Thay and you're fighting against different red wizards of Thay. That paladin is going to be super powerful. But if you're in a campaign where you're fighting primarily dragons or beholders or other monsters where their abilities are not spells, that aura is going to be completely useless. And when we think about the paladin, one of their core features, the thing that makes them so awesome, is their subclass specific aura. Yeah, this conversation just reminds me of a lot of things too. So I kind of wanted to try to nail this down, Ray. We have lots of advice in the game that I think is about quantitative parity in some ways. We've given advice before about making your short rests take less time so that your short rest characters over the course of a long campaign get to deal out more damage to help balance the expected value of the damage that your short rest characters can do in a campaign that doesn't have a lot of time for short rests specifically. So, you know, to me, this is thinking about quantitative balance and, and designing with quantitative balance in mind. So I really kind of wanted to nail down, like, how do you think about quantitative parity in the game? When are you using math and when are you trying to not use math and think more about fun? I think the phrasing of that question kind of almost answers the question. These days, when I'm trying to think about, air quotes, balance in my game, I'm actually just thinking about, is everybody having fun? That's the first question that I ask. Is everybody having fun? And if the answer is yes, then I don't need to change anything. If the answer is maybe <laughs> or no, then all of a sudden I need to start looking at the numbers and more specifically, I need to be looking at fantasy fulfillment. So typically when one of my players signs up and creates a character, they are imagining the iconic things that this character will be able to do as a part of an ensemble cast. The thing that gets in the way of their fun is when they aren't able to fulfill this promise, right? So they're asking a question, will my character be iconic the way that I am imagining them being iconic? And the promise is, yes, I will design a game in which your character will be iconic. And that attaches back to that question that we were asking earlier of, should I choose this option? Should I choose to be a cleric with turn on dead? Part of my fantasy is that I'm going to be repelling hordes of zombies. 
And if my player is up front with me about this as the DM, I'm like, okay, I need to put some zombie hordes in my game. And that will facilitate fun. So maybe they're not having fun because I'm not doing these things. Or maybe they're not achieving their fantasy because the player options themselves are not conducive to fulfilling that fantasy. A specific example that comes to mind very easily is the monk. The monk is a class that has a pretty small pool of key points, and they get those key points back on a short rest. Especially when we look at a subclass like the Four Elements Monk. This is a subclass that is widely regarded as one of the worst monk options. Why? Well, because at most tables, it does not allow the, the player to achieve the fantasy that they're pursuing. So when I'm a player and I'm reading through the player handbook and I see the art of the four elements monk, I'm like, whoa, if I play this monk, I get to be the avatar. That is so cool. My entire childhood, I wanted to be a waterbender. It's all I've ever wanted. If I play this character class, I can be a waterbender for three hours out of my week, once a week, I can leave my boring mundane life and become an avatar style elements bender. They show up to the table and they use an elemental ability and boom, all their key points are gone. Because the way that that player class is designed, you really only get to use like one or two elemental things, and then all your key points are gone, and you can't even do your other cool core monk stuff. So when we're talking about balance, we're not talking about quantitatively, is this class fun or not? We're talking about, does my player feel like they're a bender? And they don't. They don't feel like they're a bender. And Perhaps a way that we could get them to feel more like they're a vendor is we pull the costs of using these abilities way down, and we pull the damage of these abilities way down, and we get we allow them to like add a weak elemental ability to all of their attacks, and then boom, every turn they're doing something crazy with the earth or the water or the wind or the ice. And yeah, sure, they're not one-hit KOing enemies maybe the way they would have if they were using like fireball with all of their key points but they feel like they're a character from avatar the last airbender and that's a that's a i think a pretty solid example of how sometimes the design uh, in my opinion is poor not because of mechanical parity or quantitative parity but because it's but I think it's a really good example of, as a dungeon master, just because this thing is published in the core rulebook doesn't mean that it, in its original state, is conducive for facilitating fun at your table. And that was your original question, Ariel, of when I'm evaluating something, what, how am I looking at it? First, the first thing is, is this player having fun? Because maybe I'm the type of DM that runs seven short rests a day in between long rests. So seven combats or encounters in between a single long rest. And this monk is getting their elemental powers back seven times a day. 
Whereas the wizard and the paladin, the barbarian, they're running out of their abilities and they're not able to use any of their cool stuff. And this monk is able to use an awesome elemental power in every short combat that they're a part of. And boom, they are achieving that fantasy. But in trying to do this to get the monk to feel awesome, what have I done to the other players at the table where now they can't use any of their cool stuff for most of the session of Dungeons and Dragons? I think that's, you know, exactly the conversation I have about these variant rest rules where you get to have the short rest when you sleep and the long rest like once a week or whatever it is that, you know, it is such a good variant rule. It makes so many party dynamics way more fun and I love the resource management part of it. But sometimes I don't do it because I think the players are going to have less fun based on this rule set. And, you know, I think that this yeah really drives home the point of another way that you're looking at kind of a variant, maybe homebrew-esque decision about the numbers in your game. The way we intuitively balance this thing is based on whether or not it's fun. And we don't ask the question, is this numerically perfect? But, you know, because it's already a Wizards of the Coast material. But if somebody brought to a homebrew space this idea of variant rest rules and wanted to publish them, maybe you'd have a ton of people arguing about the specific numbers and the specific balance, when in reality it's meant to be used for some tables, maybe a lot of tables, but not every single one of them. And I kind of like this idea that there are so many rules that are literally published in the source material that don't need to be used at every table, and that maybe we should think about homebrew content that way as well. Exactly. And as a dungeon master, allow yourself the freedom to be a little bit of a game designer. I think that I think that a lot of people are afraid to move away from rules as written uh, because they believe that the rules as written are perfectly balanced, right? As long as I run it exactly as it was written, everyone will have perfect equal fun at my table and my game will be perfectly successful. It's like all of those hoops that we just talked about to help a player who is playing this four elements monk achieve that fantasy of being a bender at the table. What if we just run less short rests, but we just double the number of key points that the monk has or triple it and see what happens. And now all of a sudden is everybody having fun at the table? Of course the monk is going to have more fun because you just triple the the <laughs> effectiveness of their character. Yeah. Uh, so you'll probably have to keep an eye on the other characters at the table. If they're all long rest characters, they might not notice. The barbarian is still going to be doing all of their awesome raging. The wizard is still dropping all of their awesome spells. You can long rest with the frequency that you were before. So those people are getting their cool stuff back and the monk isn't running out of their cool stuff nearly as quickly. I could see that working for a number of player class combinations at the table, just tripling the number of key points that the monk has per rest. So this is actually perfect because I wanted to ask again about this question of what do you do when you're unsure? So you're telling me, okay, maybe I should triple the amount of key points. And I'm thinking to myself, oh, will this be fun? I don't know. Maybe. You kind of used that word before, maybe this will be fun. And I'm wondering, how does that relate to what you're doing when you're publishing and playtesting? And also kind of, how does that relate to how you might respond as a DM if somebody comes to your game with some homebrew material? You know, an example we've talked about in like a long time ago was the Titan Heart Sorcerer from MCDM. And we had this conversation, maybe this would be unfun for some of my players. 
And so when I don't know the answer, how do I respond to a player coming to me and asking to put this into my game? I think it's a great question. And it's a, it's a really hard question. Uh, so the, the answer is going to be meandering and sprawling and hard to follow. <laughs> so <Perfect>. buckle in. <laughs> so when we look at an option like the Titan Heart Sorcerer, so say a player has come to me and said, I really want to use this homebrew class. Um, I would say, let me see it obviously. I'm not just going to sign blank checks. Yep. Um, if, if you've gotten anything from this conversation, I hope it's that achieving fun for everyone at the table is a nuanced process that requires thoughtfulness, regardless of whether or not you're using homebrew options or even just published material. You're going to need to be thoughtful to achieve fun for everybody at the table. So, so this player comes to me with the Titan Heart Sorcerer, and I, what I do when I'm evaluating homebrew material is, first of all, I ask the player what fantasy they're trying to achieve. How do you picture your character being iconic in the narrative of this game that we're going to be playing? And then I juxtapose that next to the ability set they have presented to me. With the Titan Heart Sorcerer, someone might be like, I really want to play this sorcerer that has Titan blood in me, and I want to be able to like unleash that Titanness in combat. It's like, okay, that's what I'm evaluating with. So I'm looking through, and I see that I think two times per day, I think it's proficiency times per day, the sorcerer can assume a form change. That's not crazy. Other things in Dungeons and Dragons have, have limited form changes that they can do. And while they're in this form change, they're getting a boost to their armor class. They're using their charisma to help them hit with attacks. They're getting the extra attack feature. That's kind of interesting. They're getting advantage on strength checks and strength-based abilities. So I'm like, oh, okay, there's a lot of overlap here with the, the Barbarian. I'm just keeping that in mind. I'm like, oh, this is kind of like a barbarian sorcerer. All right. And then I think to myself, okay, well, what else do they get? When they're in this form change, they also get access to, I think, four or five additional evocation spells, like damage dealing, status inducing evocation abilities that they can get. I'm like, oh, okay, well, the, the point of the sorcerer is that it has a limited spell list. The spell list is shorter compared to other full casters. So this is like expanding the spell list in a very considerable way, almost kind of doubling it at lower levels. So this is kind of crossing over into the evocation wizard territory. And then I think to myself, wow, this class is really powerful. That's not where I stop though, right? I think a lot of people get to that point of, wow, this is really powerful and that's enough for them, right? They're like, nope, this is too good. You can't play this at my table. It's just too good. It's better than the other stuff that exists. That is a little bit weird to me to stop there. What you should be asking yourself, I think, is will this be fun at the table? Well, if it's as powerful as you think it is, it's definitely going to be fun for the person using the class. I'm looking at the abilities. It seems like the mechanics are achieving this fantasy that the player described to me that they want to live at the table. But it is really powerful. So will it make the other players at the table have less fun? Will they be sidekicks because this player is playing this Titan Heart Sorcerer? And the answer 
probably depends on what options they're using. So if there's a barbarian in the party, there's a lot of overlap between the, the coolest stuff that the barbarian does and this cool stuff that the sorcerer is doing. Is the sorcerer going to make the barbarian feel like they're just a worse barbarian? Because the sorcerer also has all the versatility of the spellcasting that they're getting. Probably, looking at the class. Okay, so if one of my players wants to play a barbarian, no, you can't play a titan heart sorcerer. That's the decision I've come to. Also, you get a lot of really cool evocation spells and a pretty big spell list. So if one of the other players in the party wants to play an evocation wizard or a wizard that's going to be doing a lot of blasting, my answer is no, you can't play the titan heart sorcerer. But that's pretty darn specific, right? I can think of tons of different class compositions that still allow for this player to play this class that they want to play. I think this is really interesting too, because I might even put in an extra step into your answer, Ray, where after I've identified that I have a barbarian and this could be stepping on their toes, or I have an evocation wizard, my extra step before saying no might be to ask those players what they think of playing in a campaign with somebody who's going to be doing similar actions to them. Because I have had, you know, one-shots and short adventures where everybody was like a troop of bards and, you know, you're all kind of doing some of the same stuff and maybe somebody has rolled a little bit better stats or maybe somebody is just better at the combat mechanics of D&D and kind of ends up kind of just like being better at a board game and they overshadow some of the other players. I think in those scenarios, you know, they were playing a troop of bards because they thought it would be hilarious and fun and they wanted to do it. So they don't mind so much the stepping on people's toes in combat. And so, you know, maybe I go to this barbarian and they're like, I don't care at all, you know, and maybe then I do let the Titan Heart Sorcerer play at my table. And so I think, you know, even when you are really evaluating balance in a very smart way, there is still some more wiggle room to let unbalanced things happen at your table. Absolutely. And I think this actually demonstrates the point as opposed to uh, being a counterpoint, which is that we don't know how successful this design is. How can we measure how successful it is? Well, I think a really good measure of how successful some design is, is whether or not people are using it at their tables. So if you make something that's really powerful and does a lot of what other classes do, you may be limiting the potential success of your design because less people will allow it at their table. Maybe instead of 100% of DMs allowing this option at the table, you are now lowering that number for whatever reasons they have. For me, it was that it was doing a lot of things that barbarians do and evocation wizards do. And that was like the thing that that was my threshold and it made it not successful design for me because it crossed that line and you're never going to get this right you can't know what is going to be correct right like like you you just have to make something that you think could be successful for some people and you got to put it out there and see how successful it is see whether or not people like it see whether or not it's inspiring people in there and they're tweaking it right like for me my metric of success is not whether or not people are playing it as written at their table 
if they're playing a variant of my Weave Breaker or my Pact of the Dragon God, because there are some things that they decided they could change, similar to how we were talking about doubling the key points for the monk that makes it successful at their table, boom, that's a 100% that's success in my book. You know, like, wow, you're achieving this fantasy at your table inspired by my content. That's it. That's more successful than someone who reads through it and says, wow, this is really cool. I, I might play this someday and then never gets around to doing it because there's so many cool things out there that they could be doing. I think we can bring this back to kind of the original idea of advice for homebrewing your own material. In the case of this monk that maybe I'd want to publish as a subclass where I double the key points, I think it's better for me to go ahead and do that and create a amazing, iconic, fantasy-fulfilling subclass and know that it's not going to be right for every single table of Dungeons & Dragons. And that way, when I publish it, for some people, it's going to be a 10 out of 10. They're going to knock it out of the park and they're going to use it. And for other people, they're not going to be able to use it or they'll have to change the rules in order to use it. Because instead, if I don't double the key points and my monk subclass doesn't actually fulfill the fantasy I want to use, it's going to be maybe like a 4 out of a 10 or 3 out of 10 subclass for every single table. And suddenly no one's going to use it. So instead of being a 10 out of 10 for some and a 0 out of 10 for others, I meet in the middle, I get a 4 or 5 out of 10, and nobody uses it. I think it's way more important to understand who you're designing for, try to think of what tables might want to use your homebrew, and try to really just fulfill that fantasy, even if it's not perfectly balanced for every single table of Dungeons & Dragons. If anything, a really niche option could be more successful than something that you've watered down to be more generally accessible. Your success metric isn't, is this thing quantitatively balanced? Your success metric is, are people excited to play this at the table? Are people excited for someone else to play this at the table? And as a dungeon master, are you excited to run encounters against this option that you are providing for players? Definitely. I mean, think of the millions of people that play D&D. For you to create a successful product, you don't need a large percentage of them to buy your material or to use your material. You might even only need a tenth of a percent of D&D players to care about your product in order to be a huge success. So I think it's really important in that context to think about just building the thing that is fun and exciting and make that your top priority. And then as playtest feedback comes in from people, listen closely. I think that playtesting is often used as a crutch uh, by, by game designers. Presumably, the ranger, the four elements monk, the champion fighter, all of these options that were in the core player's handbook were playtested and somehow still made it through <laughs> all of that process and into the core player's handbook, even though they appear to be poor design by the criteria that we've outlined, where people aren't using them successfully at their tables. Playtesting is sometimes used as a crutch. Oh, we playtested this and people said it was good. Therefore, you should trust that it's good. It's like, no, 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 no. <laughs> you gotta you gotta keep iterating. The feedback comes in, you gotta change some things up, be open to the idea that, oh, maybe this was poor design in the beginning. We've seen that wizards revised the ranger after a few years. Definitely ask your player what fantasy they're trying to fulfill. 
by choosing options, especially homebrew options. Um, when I was playing in a ben, in a game with Ben that I was running, uh, he shared with me that he wanted to play a rogue, but he felt like the rogue's round-over-round round mechanics were kind of boring. Like, he didn't want to just be trying to find a place that's hidden or use aim, trying to get sneak attack every round. So I was like, that's totally reasonable. I see where you're coming from. Maybe we could come up with something that's like a mix between a rogue and a battle master. And Ben was like, oh, I have this perfect homebrew that I, that I maybe will fix this problem comes to me with the homebrew. It's a list of weapons that deal different types of damage types. And I'm, and I'm thinking to myself, I don't see how this solves the problem. And I was telling Ben, I'm like, Ben, if you have a dagger that deals 2d6 damage instead of 1d4 damage, that doesn't change the fact that you're probably still going to be mechanically incentivized uh, to like hide every round and try and get sneak attack every round. And immediately it was like, oh man, you're right. <laughs> like I got excited by this homebrew, well-designed homebrew, really cool. Gave all these weapons, all these like really interesting side effects and gave someone a reason to collect different types of weapons. He got really excited by this homebrew, but then didn't realize that the homebrew presented was not going to help him solve his perceived problem with the fantasy he was trying to achieve or, or the things that he was trying to do every round. So that can be very useful also. Sometimes your players will have a problem and their solution that they'll present to you is not a solution to their problem. Yeah, I think that's a good point that this pitfall of trying to, you know, really focus on the numbers, it can be a problem for players, DMs, and people who are publishing. It's not specific to one of them, which is why I think this conversation is so interesting to me, that there are so many facets of the way that numbers can kind of get in the way of the ethos of D&D. I think the ethos of D&D is really more about curating an experience rather than playing a board game. And almost every rule in D&D has the opportunity to be interpreted differently at another table anyways. And so I think that, I think this idea of experimenting, trial and error, and making content that is specific for certain tables and not specific for other tables is just a part of the original ethos of D&D in general. And it's not changing the game in any way, it's in fact leaning into the design of the game. The Dungeon Master has so much flexibility, so many rules can be changed for a good reason. And that reason is because it's impossible to predict every single table. The tables that you play at are not mathematical models that can be solved, there are humans experiencing a bunch of different things, having tons of different priorities for why they play, and ultimately coming to an experience that is a shared experience, not something for one individual player. Absolutely. This is all the time that we have for today, unfortunately. Um, if you feel like there's something that you disagree with uh, that you heard today, we're really interested in engaging with those ideas. I know Ariel and I, when I were just talking about these ideas before recording the episode, we were not on the same page. So I imagine that there are uh, other folks out there with similar ideas. Head on over to the Running Off the Rails Reddit. There will be a thread dedicated to this episode. Until next time, I'm Ariel Rasco. And I'm Raymond O'Connor. And thanks for listening to Running Off the Rails. If you enjoyed Running Off the Rails, please like, follow, and review our show on your platform of choice. 
Please follow our Instagram, Running Off the Rails, for notifications whenever we release a blog post, a new episode, or new content on the DMs Guild. If you prefer a specific type of content, please send us a message on Instagram. The jam you are listening to is Hoist by Andy G. Cohen, and you can find Hoist and more of Cohen's music on the Free Music Archive. You can find links to all of our content at runningofftherails.com or on our Facebook page, Running Off the Rails.